This is episode number twenty with Ari Gross. Coming up. So all I really tried to do was not fall apart for my walk-on where I said nothing. Finally, Dan Aykroyd went, "Okay, stop. You like you cannot be doing this like strawberry festival in the back of my shot. There's something that that stirs in us." When we watch performance that has some modicum of of something authentic in it, I got a call from my manager saying the studio's not letting them fire you. So that's how it started. Working on material, finding the way in, like bang, that's the thing I find my deepest engagement in. Hey there, my name is Nathan Agan, and this is the Working Actors Journey, bringing you in-depth conversations with actors that have been working professionally for decades. Hope you're doing well out there. Welcome to the season two finale. And if you're just joining us, we have a number of fantastic episodes where working actors share where they've been, how they do it, and what they've learned along the way. Actors who have been putting in the work day in, day out, and who have certainly had their ups and downs like everyone else. These conversations are meant to inspire and reassure you on your journey that you're not alone, you're not crazy, and though the road may be long and challenging, there are rewards ahead. And I really want to help you as an actor out there. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss anything ahead, and visit the website workingactorsjourney.com, where you can get a copy of the guide "Twelve Top Acting Tips from Season One." These are some of the best ideas taken from all the episodes compiled in one place, and it's waiting for you. There's also a link in the episode description. Today on the show is Ari Gross, an actor with forty plus years in the business who always gives a memorable performance wherever he pops up. Ari was absolutely one of the inspirations for this podcast, and I knew he needed to be a guest. It was just a question of when, and I couldn't be more thrilled we're wrapping up season two with him. This is also a personal episode for me, as Ari has been quite a part of my journey, especially during my twenties. I first met Ari in college at USC when he co-taught an acting class with Tim Decay, who many people would later know from the show White Collar. Ari and Tim were both fantastic teachers. Definitely check out the film they did together, Big Eden. It's really heartwarming with a great message and great performances all around. I continued to learn from Ari when I was taking classes and doing shows at the Antias Company in L.A. I consider Ari a friend, teacher, and mentor. Now Ari has had a pretty amazing career. He's got over a hundred and twenty credits on IMDb, and that doesn't even account for the multiple recurring guest roles he's had on shows like Diagnosis Murder, The Practice, Wildfire, The Riches, and as Doctor Sidney Perlmutter on Castle. In fact, I once helped Ari run lines for a Perlmutter scene. Talk about the B team. 
Two of his celebrated co-starring roles include as the guy tasked to fetch Bette Midler's character in For the Boys and as the wronged husband in Minority Report with Tom Cruise. Both are totally worth your time as a student of acting. He creates such great characters and does so much with very little screen time. He's also absolutely one of those, hey, it's that guy, guys. He's popped up in so many different things on screen over the years, from Just One of the Guys and Soul Man to Friends, Grey Gardens, and a hundred other things. Even if you didn't know his name, you knew his face. I mean, he's in the actual book called Hey, It's That Guy. So, you know, it's official. Though I have a feeling, after today's episode, you'll know who he is from now on. Now, here's an actor marketing idea inspired by this episode. When I first told Ari that I had interviewed Reed Burney from episode 13, Ari remarked that he keeps tabs on Reed's career to see what roles he might want to check out. At least twice, they've played the same parts in Circle Mirror Transformation and as the lead in Uncle Vanya. I also noticed it with Francis Guinan from episode 14, that he and Reed had played the same part on stage in You Got Older. Now think of this. Reed is primarily in New York, Ari's in L.A., and Francis is in Chicago. Of course, they can and do work other places, but they are mainly in totally different markets, especially for theater. So I'm sure there are actors you can look at in different markets to see what roles, especially in theater, you could be right for and should be checking out. So in today's episode, Ari and I cover building props that he's used on stage, being recast as the narrator of The Wonder Years, upstaging Dan Aykroyd with strawberries, neuroscience, empathy, and authenticity, being embraced and rejected by the audience, getting fired multiple times from the same show, what Ari still loves about acting, and so much more. Having great mentors and access to outstanding teachers can make the difference in your career. And that's what this show is hoping to do, to connect you with actors that could change your life and make your acting journey easier and more satisfying. And if you'd like to get exclusive access to additional episodes, bonus content, and items that are available nowhere else, I invite you to become a premium member of the Working Actors Journey, starting at just $2 per month at workingactorsjourney.com slash premium. Just to give you an idea of benefits, I recently sent out an exclusive bonus episode with Robert Pine from episode number one. Members learned more about what he looks for in a script, and also how the current state of business, including with services like Netflix, is affecting the middle-class performer. More great insights into the life of a working actor. And they also got to know before anyone else who today's guest was. So if those kinds of insider scoops and bonus content are up your alley, become a premium member. Again, just $2 per month to get started. Plus, by joining, you're ensuring that this show continues. Consider this the most inexpensive and possibly most valuable acting class you'll ever take. 
Join now at workingactorsjourney.com slash premium or see the show notes and episode description for a link. Now here's a bit more about Ari's journey. He attended the University of California at Irvine and went on to study acting at the Conservatory at South Coast Repertory. At South Coast Rep, his credits include the world premieres of Richard Greenberg's Our Mother's Brief Affair and Donald Margulies's Brooklyn Boy, which marked his Broadway debut when it moved to New York. He spent a year doing social political theater with El Teatro Campesino under the direction of Luis Valdez. While Ari's performed in a number of world premieres and workshop productions, he's no stranger to classical theater, appearing in numerous works by Chekhov, Shakespeare, and Shaw. He has also performed in dozens of plays recorded for L.A. theater works. For a production we discuss, Underneath the Lintel, Ari was nominated for an L.A. Ovation Award for Lead Actor and for the L.A. Drama Critics Circle for Solo Performance. On screen, he was a series regular on Ellen and has made numerous guest appearances on a wide variety of television series such as Different Strokes, Knight Rider, The Outer Limits, Six Feet Under, and Law & Order SVU. Are you looking for more info from industry insiders and great teachers about being an actor? And do you want this as something you can listen to on the go? Well, you're in luck. As a listener of the Working Actors Journey podcast, Audible is offering you a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Whether it's one hour or 15 hours, it doesn't matter. Whatever you want, that first item is totally free. To download your audiobook today, go to workingactorsjourney.com slash audible. Here are a few recommendations for your acting journey. The Actor's Life by Jenna Fisher from The Office, read by the author and others, including our guest, Reed Burney. Secrets of Screen Acting by Patrick Tucker, a TV and film director, read by David Lawrence the 17th. Respect for Acting by Uta Hagen, read by Angel Masters. Get one of these or anything else at workingactorsjourney.com slash audible. I gotta warn you, you're gonna hear me laugh quite a bit on this one. Maybe it's Ari's inquisitive or even mischievous nature, or how he almost has this childlike wonder at times, but I just find him hilarious. So, there we go. A couple fun connections came up to other episodes today. We talk about an acting lesson that Ari learned from the actor Kurt Fuller, who is another guy you totally recognize and I'm sure also has Hey, It's That Guy status. When Kurt was a student at UC Berkeley and Robert Goldsby from episode 17 was one of his professors. Small world indeed. And the second connection is that this time it's Ari who references the player and Hecuba from Hamlet, which we brought up in episode 19 with Alan Mandel. And in a special appearance, you'll also hear Ari's cat, Butterfly. So there's a bit of distant meowing until she eventually gets hungry and leaves. So enjoy getting to know Ari's cat as well. Be sure to stick around for the very end, where we talk about three important quotes for actors, creativity, and yeses. 
you'll hear what we mean. So here we go with episode number 20. Please enjoy my chat with Ari Gross. You know what? I have some sort of jinx right now with uh, technology. I, I had two machines break on me last night. Are you someone who believes in Mercury retrograde, or do you uh, do you think that's all a bunch of... I don't believe it, man. It is. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I don't. Okay. How are the, uh, the cabinets coming along, though? They're very complicated. Now, I remember when you were doing, I guess it was Circle Mirror Transformation, I remember you telling me... You built something uh, because the character you were playing was a, a carpenter, and so you actually you actually built something that you could use as a prop in the play. Was that was that? Am I remembering yeah, I mean, this correctly? I, yeah, I mean it's silly, but there there were a couple of little things. But I, I do sort of like to do that kind of thing. Um, yeah. So in Circle Mirror Transformation, Schultz is a carpenter, and I think the final scene, or almost the final scene. Um, he gives a gift to the teacher. And when she opens the, there's a box and she opens the box and it's a dream catcher. Okay. Yep. So I made a dream catcher and then I made a little wooden box to put the dream catcher in and made, you know, the handle. I just used, you know, plywood, but then for the handle of the box, I used a, a little piece of wood from a tree in my yard and just to sort of imbue it with, you know, to give to Linda Geringer yeah. a thing that I made. Right. It's not so matter like some moment of genius, but you know, I didn't have to do any acting. Right. <laughs> I could just give Linda Geringer this thing that I made. Right. And so where did this um, carpentry side of you start to come out? Like, I mean, is this something you've always been, you've always done, the kind of building things with your hands? Or uh, is it more of a recent? And, and, and then how did it factor? Yeah. I mean, was that the first time it factored into your acting? No, I've, be, I've made other stuff. I've made other stuff before. But it, it um, when I grew up, I didn't know anything about that stuff. My dad was an engineer. Sure. Okay. And so he would, um, you know, I remember, I remember him, you know, building some bookcases that we had and being able to fix things and tinker with stuff. Um, so I had a sense that like it was, that it was a thing you could, one could do. Mm -hmm. Um, and then when I was first hired by South Coast Repertory, I worked in the shop. Um, and before I worked in the shop, I, you know, just, they were moving from their old building into their current building, which was new 40 years ago. Um, and I did a lot of cleaning up and a lot of painting of walls and sweeping of floors. But, um, once they got into production, I started, uh, being assigned from time to time to work in the shop. And that's where, um, that's where I learned things about flats and, Using a bandsaw and um, Andy Fagan showed me how to make a, a bongo board. There's like a cylinder with a groove in it. And then you have a board with a piece of wood running down the middle and you use it to balance. Oh, yeah, sure. Yep. Yeah. yeah you're standing um, on it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
And then um, Steve Schaefer, uh, I was assigned to uh, help him for a couple of weeks with uh, John Sedoli and Michael Tomlinson, I think. And we had to, we were breaking down every light instrument that South Coast Repertory possessed and um, checking the wi- rewiring things, fixing, you know, all, all the components for the, the, the lighting package for South Coast. And I just resented it that I was being made to do all this stuff because I was an actor and I just wanted to be cast in every play there. Um, and it was only decades later, 20 years later, when I was at Stages, and um, which was right around the time I met you, I think. Right, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and Paul Verdier sort of, you know, as it turned out, temporarily walked away. Um, I had taken over um, running the theater. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point, had to go. Well, what kind of equipment do we have? Well, here these lights, and well, these don't work. Well, I should get somebody to fix these. Or actually, let me just take the back off of. And then I, I started to realize that I knew how to do this stuff. Um, or, or, or I, I, I realized that I knew how to do a lot of stuff that that um, had just been dormant for for a long time. Right. Sure. Well, I, you know, and I do want to talk a little bit more about the South Coast experience, but I'm, I'm curious, you know, talking a little bit about your dad, who was an aerospace engineer, and then you had older siblings. Right, brother and sister. So I, I was curious, you know, and they, and they, your brother was about, what, 10 or 12 years older than you, or? 12 years older. So I was just curious how that affected you, being, being such a younger kid uh, in that family, and then your dad being an engineer and not necessarily a artistic person in terms of like acting or, or feel like he was a very science-minded person, how that informed you growing up and, and discovering that you wanted to be more artistic. Uh, do you mind if I lie down on the couch for this? And it, <laughs> it may take several months. We, we can do follow-up uh, <laughs> sessions of the podcast. Yeah. Um, you know, I'll, I'll put it this way. Uh, so my, my mom was artistic. Okay. Um, my, my parents took me to, to the theater and to concerts. The arts were certainly a, a value, um, for them. And my brother was, um, very talented musician and, um, my sister painted. And so it, it wasn't like a home that was, you know, devoid of any right. Yeah. contact with the arts. Um, I didn't know anybody who did anything like acting. I think one of the earliest memories I have that somehow related to it is, you know, I was probably in kindergarten or maybe younger. And my brother was having to memorize the Raven. Okay. My Poe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I tried to memorize quite a lot of it with him. So that was like the first piece of poetry that I knew to, um, so, so there was a performance aspect to that right. as well. And also, I mean, you know, to put this in context, you're, you're growing up in the 60s, which is a huge change in the culture and the arts and just there's so much going on. I mean, I know you're a young kid, even, you know, at five, you know, there's so much going on that you might not be totally aware of, but like just things are changing at such a, uh, such a pace in that decade. Yeah. And how much were you aware of the kind of social changes going on in the household because of your older siblings or if your parents talked about it? Was that, were you aware that a lot was changing in the culture? My recollection mm-hmm. is that I was aware. Okay. 
And I think it had a lot to do with being keenly aware of the, you know, what they used to call the generation gap. Okay. That there, that there was this like rift between my parents and my brother and sister who were, um, so my brother's 12 years older. My sister's, um, almost eight years older than me. And, um, though she's less than eight years uh, older than me now. Um, and, um, we're basically the same age. Um, and, and there were, there was a lot of screaming matches about like cultural values. Mm. So, um, though I have to say, I was sort of under the impression that that happened in every household and probably happened in every age. Mm. I don't necessarily know that's true. I was shocked when I started meeting people who, um, didn't have this feeling that their parents were like the last gasp of the old guard. <laughs> um, and uh, what do you mean your parents are your friends? <laughs> That's crazy talk. Um, so my brother and sister probably could have been, I would have been identified as, you know, bona fide hippies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my brother had rock bands and there were always people, there was always a ton of people coming over with a, equipment and playing or getting yelled at by somebody and going somewhere else to play. And and I did get to spend a lot of time with him uh, back then. He was babysat for me quite a lot. I, I was not keenly aware of having any sort of sensibility, particularly about being an actor. Though um, in the early 90s, I was doing a movie in Texas. And my brother, who had never done this before, uh, he had some free time and, and flew out to Texas and stayed with me for a couple of days while we were shooting on location in the Dallas area. And out to dinner one night with um, a couple of people from the cast and crew and my brother, someone asked me when I got into acting. And I mentioned that I really liked it in high school. And then when I went to college, I went to UC Irvine and you know, I had a full list of classes, but auditioned for a play and and very quickly was like not going to any classes at all any longer and just doing workshop productions in the school of theater and um and and kind of there realized how much I just that that is really all I wanted to do. And my brother kind of scoffed and went what are you talking about? When you were five, you would, you'd call everybody into the living room because you were, you had a show to put on. And, and I don't really remember this. I, I mean, I have some vague thing, but I, I, I don't remember what I told people they were going to be seeing or right. what annoying cry for attention I was uh, pulling off. But um, I, I guess it is something that was with me from a very young age. Yeah. You know, it's it's really interesting hearing you talk about uh, the family dynamics because you were part of the the pilot for the Wonder Years. Was that a story that really, like the character of Kevin, did that really speak to you personally, or did, that was my story? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. No, that was no. I told them the story of my life. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> I I am Kevin. Yeah, they based it on me. No, I, 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 I no, you know the the thing is, I hear it's a great show, sure, and yeah. um, and I've so many 
wonderful friends who were part of a it, big yeah. part of it. Yeah. But um, I had done a movie with uh, Carol Black and Neil Marlins mm-hmm. that they wrote and produced. And that at a certain point, they asked me to do the voiceover for Wonder Years. Right. And I said, sounds great. And I did, I don't know, several episodes of voiceover for Kevin. And then the pilot, I I, I may have the sequence yeah. out of order, but, you know, they, they did wind up airing the pilot. Um, with my voiceover. It was right after the Super Bowl, whatever year that was. And I think I was waiting to hear when I was going to come in and do more episodes. And I was in my car listening to NPR Terry Gross' Fresh Air. <laughs> and there was an interview with Daniel Stern, uh, who I knew. Right. And um, he was doing this interview about this new show where he was the – narrator of the show, a guy narrating his life, you know, when he was a kid. And that's how I found out I'd been fired. Oh, um, so I called Carol and Neil and said, I just heard Daniel Stern is there. Like, oh, yeah, there's a guy at the network. And he, you know, he had also heard Daniel take a pass at it and then yours. And then I guess he preferred, I mean, it was some convoluted thing. Um, but I guess the guy at the network didn't like me as much as he liked Daniel Stern or some other factor. Right. Unknown to me. Was it easy enough to kind of just let that go at the time? Uh, Do you find you get very attached to things? Yeah, it was, it was super easy to let it go. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, that's good. good (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, okay. So I, um, there was a little bit of a departure on my part, but you were talking about being at uh, UC Irvine, uh, and you were studying theater there. And I know you made the decision to leave UCI to go train at South Coast. And right. so I, I'm curious, like, how did you either know or, you know, what were you feeling that told you, I need to leave college and just start you know, doing the, the, the training program at South Coast. Like, I've done as much as I can here. Like, what, what was that process? Well, first of all, the thing that attracted me about, about going to Irvine, I grew up in uh, Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And of the places where I was accepted to go to college, Irvine was going to be the cost-free option. Okay. Um, there's actually a university that's in Los Angeles where – um, I, I could have gone, but I didn't have, um, the means or, or the kind of justification to move out of my parents' apartment. Um, and that was a sort of, uh, you know, high priority for me. <laughs> so, um, Irvine, I could go, I could move away, but also Irvine had this reputation for a conservatory style theater program. And I had partially read one of Robert Cohen's books. Uh, acting power. Uh, so I was very interested in Irvine for that. And it might have been sort of part of how I talked myself into thinking that was the choice to make. But my parents weren't particularly keen on the idea of me being a theater major, not like when you're a freshman, I had, you had to declare a major or anything. But, um, you know, I think they wanted me to to go into one of the Doctor, lawyer, stockbroker, 
don't be broke all your life professions. Sure. So when I got to Irvine, as I say, I wound up spending all my time in the theater department um, at the expense, uh, ultimately, by really the second quarter of my freshman year, I, I really wasn't going to other classes uh, because I had three rehearsals a day and a show in the evening and a dance class and an acting class. And so I was acting in a production of Pirandello's Enrico Four. And after the performance, um, it was directed by a faculty member, and there were a lot of graduate students in it. And um, I, yeah, I was I was one of the guards. And after the performance, uh, Lee Shallot, uh, now Lee Shallot Shemmel, I think she's known. Uh, uh, she was at the time the casting director and head of the conservatory. At South Coast Repertory. So this is 1978. She came and saw the play um, and uh, said hello to all of us afterwards and told us that um, if we had any interest in professional training, we should come see her when we finish school. And I went back to my dorm that night and I wrote my parents a letter and said that I'd just been scouted by the casting director from a major repertory theater and that I was going to go into the training program there and get my equity card and become an actor. Um, and I mailed them this letter and it's not, it's not like we were, you know, speaking on the phone every day. There weren't cell right. phones. I'm not yeah. even sure they had a phone in my dorm, in my dorm room. But, um, you know, I, I saw them a couple of months later and they were like, what's this about? Um, at the end of. Uh, my freshman year, I went to see Lee and I auditioned for the summer conservatory at South Coast. And she accepted me into the program. I read when you were at uh, South Coast, I think it was when you uh, you did the show Time of Your Life. I read that uh, the actor Kurt Fuller shared something from uh, Robert Goldsby that he had learned at UC Berkeley. And I, and I spoke to Robert um, for the podcast. And yeah. um, so it was really cool to hear, you know, his side of things. But what, what, at least what I read was Kurt said that he heard from Robert, the character with the greatest degree of conflict gets the focus. And I was wondering if you could share how you use that to develop your role of another cop in, in time of your life. Yeah, right. So um, it, it's funny. Um, Kurt and I had met um, a year before the conserva conservatory. So we met in the summer of 77. I just graduated from high school and he had just graduated from UC Berkeley. And he was working in a shoe store. And I went in with my girlfriend and uh, we struck up a conversation. And I worked in a movie theater in Westwood Village. And so I would sort of like drop by this shoe store and see if he was in and we would chat in the doorway for, you know, an hour at a time about our hopes and dreams and all this stuff. And um, we became great friends and remained so for, for many, many years. And we would talk about acting, among other things. And one of the things he shared with me was this thing that Bob Goldsby had told him. And... 
I, I don't think it was an intended as a, well, this is how you steal focus. Right. Sure. Um, but it is something interesting to, to look for when you're, when you're watching plays, uh, or, or movies, you know, who's got, who's got more at stake in any particular scene. Right. Um, and, um, I don't know that it was necessarily in play during time of your life, but I, because I, you know, um, as I came on, as you say, as another cop, uh, for about 15 seconds, I, you know, I basically just walked on and I think John Sidoli maybe had a line because he was a cop. <laughs> and I walked over to the, to a, there was a bar and Ron Balsam would say something to crack me up and, I would sort of look away and John David Keller was at a table downstage and he'd look upstage at me and do something that, so all I really tried to do was not fall apart for my walk on where I said nothing. Though I would spend, you know, I was also the ASM on that show. So I had a lot of work to do before, um, you know, I'd sweep and mop the stage, um, before we, you know, set everything up. I, um, there were, there were props that I had to organize. The uh, actor who played, uh, I think it's Joe, um, is the principal guy in the story who sits at the table all day and he eats about a hundred sticks of juicy fruit gum. And of course, that much sugar would kill anybody. <laughs> so, um, I had to take packs of juicy fruit gum and very carefully cut the packages open and uh, open the foil wrappers and replace it with a sugar-free gum and then repack the, wow. the packs of cheese fruit. Yeah, that was a, a, a bit of a chore. Um, but then w- when I had some time to then get ready for my entrance, I would put on my policeman's costume um, and then I would I would walk around for about 20 minutes and sort of imagine I was walking a, a beat and feel the the heat, the heel strike from the, you know, eight hours, 10 hours of hitting the bricks in San Francisco or wherever it takes place. I took it all very, you know, sincerely. Yeah. And um, I did a, a movie called The Couch Trip. And I was Richard Romanus's sort of assistant. Mm-hmm. In the movie. And there's a scene where he has to negotiate something with Dan Aykroyd at this very fancy party. And I'm in the room with him and I really I have no lines. And I wasn't really sure. I remember like in the morning when they said we were doing the scene, I said, I, you know, I don't think I'm in that. And they said, well, the director, Michael Ritchie directed. I said, well, Michael, Michael wants you in the scene. You don't have any dialogue. So, oh, okay. Because I didn't see that I was on the call sheet to do right. it, but fine. And then we rehearsed and I was sitting there and they had this scene. And I could not for the life of me figure out anything that was in the context of the scene that really was of any, you know, great moment for the guy I was playing. And I think I said to Michael Ritchie, um, I'm not totally sure what I'm doing here. Right. And Michael said, well, I'm, you're, you know, you, you work with this guy and it would make sense that he would bring you in for this. And, and, um, 
And it's this party and there's a, there was a thing of strawberries and whipped cream, you know, creme fraiche or something right. like that. And he said, why don't you, you know, just listen to their conversation and, you know, have a couple strawberries. And, um, so that, that's what I, that's what I started doing. And, um, I was eating strawberries and then I would sort of decide like, well, that was a bad one. <laughs> and then I'd look for, look for a good one. And I found a really good one and it was like really good. And in the course of the scene, I was eating, you know, like 12 or 15 strawberries and a couple takes in and finally Dan Aykroyd went, okay, stop. You can't do that. You like, you cannot be doing this like <laughs> strawberry festival in the back of my shot. It's like distracting. And, and, and Michael's like, okay, it's funny, but uh, Ari, just have a strawberry. And I said, okay, but can I choose it? And he said, yes. And so I, so the entire scene I just played, like I was trying to pay attention, but I really wanted a strawberry and I decided not to have a strawberry. And, but then they looked really irresistible and they're like, the smell of the strawberries would draw my attention. And then I'd try and find the right one and I'd pick through a few. And then I finally got one. And put a little bit of cream on it and just took a little bite. And then I took a very long time to eat this one strawberry. And like, I thought it was hilarious. And my conflict there was I was supposed to be paying attention to this, this business meeting, but this was the, the most incredible strawberry I'd ever eaten. And, and um, I think by the end of it, they just took all the strawberries away. And, you know. <laughs> Had me looking at like a brochure or something. <laughs> it's, um, and it's not that I was doing anything really big, but if somebody's engaged in an activity and they have some problem with it, your, your eye goes to it. Right. Your, your attention goes to it. Now, in, in doing my research, uh, I remember reading about. It's very interesting you talk about like the strawberries because also, at least hearing it, there seems to be a moment of not only are you playing the scene, you know, of what the character wants, but now there's the energy of what Dan Aykroyd has said, which is kind of, you know, blending into the scene. So now there's kind of like two levels of the scene happening. And there seems to be this quality, at least of your acting that I have seen and what I'm reading about, that you you seem to blend that line between life and acting a lot. Like there were a couple instances where I remember you, you, you said you got a part and then the director asked, you know, why you didn't sound like you had during the audition. And you said, well, I had a cold. And then when you were rehearsing uncle Vanya, you were tying your shoe and the director loved it. And you were like, well, no, I just, my shoe was untied and I had to, I had to tie that. Like, do you look for those moments or do they just happen? Okay, so um, <laughs> the what, uh, the reason I was it, well, I had a cold when I had I auditioned was right. that, that that just was the truth. Of course, I couldn't understand yeah, why. Of course. Um, but I, I and that was my first movie. It was oh, like my okay. first day on my first movie, and it was like <laughs> I I couldn't understand why the director hated everything I was doing. And then he finally came up to me and he said, "Like you had this other thing with you." <laughs> um, now. It's funny. That's, that's my first movie. In my, in my first TV job, um, was an episode of Different Strokes, which, is, so if you can believe I'm that old. 
and there was a, a thing where I was stand, I was a high school kid and I sold stolen stuff out of my locker. And there was this thing where I opened my locker to display my, you know, my wares. And there was a gold chain and it, and it fell off the little hook that they had put up. And so I bent down and I picked it up. And as I was, I mean, just, it just took a second. And then there, there was cut, reset, and a voice over a loudspeaker in front of a studio audience saying, like, what are you doing? Oh, geez. And I said, oh, the necklace fell out of the locker. And they go, yeah, well, you, you, you just like ducked out of the shot. And, <laughs> and I said, oh, I, well, the necklace fell out of the locker. And then an AD came over and said, we can't see the necklace. If it falls out again, just keep playing it. Like, we, we didn't see it. Don't right. duck out of the shot. Right. And I, I sort of felt like, okay, I mean, this is all super intimidating. It's my first job and first time, you know, taping a show in front of a live audience. And, you know, thanks for making me feel like a fool for following a natural impulse to pick up a thing that just fell. But um, it was years later when I was studying with the great, beloved, and unfortunately late uh, Roy London. Just an extraordinary gift of a human being. Um, Much of what he had to offer as an acting teacher was to um, sort of affirm that the stuff of our lives was the meat of our performances Mm -hmm. and that that truly was what we had to offer. And it really sort of became a matter of, can you find a way and the courage to bring your life as you are living it today and what happened today on stage with you or into the scene with you. And I think the ultimate expression of that, I don't think he was the first person to say that. And also he did study with Stella. And I will tell you, I I, I never studied with Stella Adler, but in one of her books uh, that's about uh, playing um, Chekhov, uh, Ibsen and Shaw, maybe, um, she talks about Chekhov and Vanya in particular, that the, the job for the actor with, with Vanya in all of Chekhov, but more particularly in Vanya than any of the other plays, is that you cannot invent anything for that play to work. You have to walk on stage and discover what is happening mm. and everything. So, and, and that's super appealing to me. You know, I think there's some variation of the phrase, well, you know, uh, there's nothing in the play that says Vanya doesn't have the flu today or isn't tired today or doesn't have a headache or knees isn't, is not hurting or, or is distracted. You, you know, all of that stuff. So I sort of fight to try and bring as much of that um, on stage or into a scene with me as I can and still fulfill um, all of the 
other, you know, the technical demands right. of the scene. It's like, you know, the words, all of them coming out in the right order. Well, you know, I, I yeah, I, I remember um, maybe it was uh, when you were, I don't know if it was when you were teaching at USC so much as maybe when um, I, I got to observe more of your work at Antius. I remember kind of observing how you were working and for the first time thinking like, oh, this is what an actor does. Like, these are the questions you need to ask. Like, beyond just what do I want in this scene? Like, everybody learns that. But like, there was, there was just such a, a curiosity from you uh, about all these questions that weren't on the page that were going to inform your choices. And, and, and there was this kind of realization of like, oh, that's maybe not like, that's the only mindset you can have and, and, you know, be a successful actor. But it was just like, like, I don't, I, like, I can tell in my tool bag, I don't have that. And, and yet I see how it helps you or, or it seems to help you. And I'm, and so I'm curious that curiosity, that looking at things from, I mean, even the strawberry story, I think is a good example. Like, where did that come from? Uh, you know, or like, was that something you learned at, at South Coast or another acting teacher or just to kind of look at things from a different perspective? Well, I mean, pr- probably the strawberry thing came from not having anything to do. Right. So realizing like, I've got to have something to do. But then when Dan Aykroyd, who I, who I think is like a genius. Right. Um, and, and, and I, I had no like ill will towards him or anything. But when he sort of stopped at a certain point and said, don't do that. That's pulling too much focus. I, I think I was being like a passive aggressive prick <laughs> and, and thought like, okay, I'll, I'll see if I can make everybody laugh by like doing like, I'll, I'll follow to the letter the thing you're saying, but not right. the spirit of it. Well, but I also think it's commendable that, you know, there would probably be a lot of actors. Uh, who would just show up and watch the conversation. And that's what they're there to do. The director said, you're there, you're in the room to just watch the conversation. But for you to really go like, no, that's not good enough for me. Like, I gotta, I gotta figure out what the hell this guy is doing. Like, what is his, what is his conflict? Do you know the movie Midnight Run? Um, that with, uh, De Niro and Groden, right? That's right. Yeah. Um, and, um, De Niro's like a bounty hunter. Groden's a mob accountant. Right. And, um, De Niro's got to like bring him across the country or something. And Groden, uh, is trying to avoid testifying. And there's, there's a scene where De Niro like stops in a cross country journey to, I, I think, see his daughter, his like estranged daughter. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a touching, scene that like reveals the like softer sentimental personal side of this of this kind of bully that De Niro is playing um and you know Groden has this um you know he he he's not he doesn't come off as a hood you know he comes off as a slightly hapless guy and you know De Niro's tough guy and but, but here he is you know encountering his daughter and Groden in very soft focus in the back of this rather sentimental and moving scene. I mean, he's, he's in handcuffs. He's waiting for them to wherever they're going to go next. And he's like looking at his watch and just like shaking his head (laughs) and projecting like in 
deep background in soft focus, this like annoyed impatience that he's being waylaid for this guy's personal business and he can't do anything about it. And it's dastardly funny. <laughs> and um, so that's, that's all. It's a point of inspiration for okay, me right, as well. Um, we're jumping all around, which is great. Uh, but there, I mean, there were, there were a couple of things I wanted to ask about just in your early years, because I imagine they did have an effect on you. Um, Polio. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, your work with uh, Teatro Campesino. Which, uh, translates to, the, uh, the farm workers theater. And, and I know, yeah. like, they, their beginnings, you know, they were kind of, uh, they had the blessing of, uh, Cesar Chavez and, 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 and all that. But it was, this was like social political theater. And I know you now to be a very socially politically aware and active person. Was it the work that you did with this company that really kind of opened your eyes to that world? Or were you already, that way and and you know what did it give you yeah i mean i suppose to um i mean i wasn't like you know rotc or remember sure you know the young goldwater republicans club or something like that (laughs) um but yeah it definitely it definitely opened my eyes um i think a little bit slightly earlier than that one of the teachers that i had at south coast repertory Mm -hmm. as a student was a um, director, writer, teacher, uh, by the name of Frank Condon. Okay. And, um, Frank had cast me, um, really right out of the conservatory in a production of a play that he had written, uh, along with Ron Saucy called The Chicago Conspiracy Trial. Right. Yeah. And it originated at the Odyssey Theater and ran for, I think, about 16 months. Wow. To sold out houses, you know, five nights a week. It was, it was fantastic. But that play opened my eyes to quite a lot. I mean, there was a lot that I was familiar with, but I, you know, I was 18 or ni- 19, I guess, when I did the play. And, um, there was a lot of stuff I had, I had sort of heard was going on when I was a kid, but I was eight years old when the, when the riots happened, right? When the yeah. riots in 68 happened and, and then the subsequent, you know, conspiracy trial. And, I was not unaware of that stuff, but mm. it, yes, it, it definitely opened my eyes. And then when we got to San Juan Bautista, Frank is the one who brought me up to Teatro Campesino. Okay. He was directing a play there, and um, Luis Valdez was producing it at his new theater. It was the inaugural production in that theater in San Juan Bautista. And I had to go audition for Luis Valdez in an editing room at Universal, where he was cutting the movie Zoot Suit. Oh, wow. Um, that he shot based on his production of the play Zoot Suit. Hmm. And um, I had to sing, and I know a song, so I sang Happy Birthday <laughs> in this little room that was, you know, like five by seven or something like that. Um, so I, I've learned a tremendous amount while there. I, I, I've actually learned a lot about a lot of things from – Virtually every play I've ever done, mm-hmm. you know, it really, you know, there's this, there's this kind of cliche that like an American actor gets cast as a shepherd. So he spends six months living on a mountaintop with a herd of sheep and learns how to play the recorder and then comes back and does two scenes as a shepherd and 
an English actor is cast as a shepherd and he reads the script and goes to the set and has, you know, tea and crumpets and plays a shepherd and goes home. I, you know, and then there's the, the, I think probably apocryphal story about Dustin Hoffman and Lawrence Olivier from Marathon Man, you know, that whole sort of like, why don't you try acting? But, you know, it's my life. And um, so if I'm going to be working on a play about um, something that happened in a country house in Russia at the end of the 19th century, like, why not find out what that was about? Sure. Well, I think it also kind of touches on what you were saying about the carpentry. It's like the more you can do, uh, and I guess it depends on what kind of actor you are and what inspires you or excites you, but if you are a curious person, the more you can do so that the acting isn't so hard. If you've done all this work and research, you can kind of more put yourself into that space. Right. And this is a thing that that Roy really talked about. If you can forget about the the acting and just be prepared enough to be open to what is happening at the time that the scene that you're in is taking place. Mm-hmm. If you can react to the sudden change of light because the cloud has momentarily gone in front of the sun and that changes how you feel for an instant. Um, or if there's a fly in the room or an itch on your nose or your shoelaces untied or, or whatever it is, or you hear a sound um, and it reminds you of something, all those things allow for, some uncontrolled aspect of who you are to come forth. And so the degree to which you can stay alive to just being alive, it enriches, I believe, what is happening. You know, because acting, it is not ballet. It's it's not modern dance. It's not an ex- um, extraordinary discipline with counting underneath. Mm -hmm. And I'm not trying to say anything reductive about ballet or modern dance, but there is something about people behaving. Um, And the more authentic someone's behavior is, I think people, when they're watching, get pulled in because, because there's something about us and our primate brains that we become very engaged with watching other people. And um, hopefully we can become very empathetic towards the people that we're watching. That's the big thing for me is can you engender empathy? Mm-hmm. Can you wake that up? I, I think, you know, we live in a world right now where it would be great if we all had a great deal more empathy for one another. Sure. Of course. Um not that I think acting is I'm not like on a mission to save the the world or anything, but um, I don't know where the, where the questions start. Um, <laughs> it, it kind of gets back to something political, yeah. um, which and the root of that is people. I think right, um, and I I think we've talked about this stuff before. Anyone listening, I would urge them to Google the mirror box and phantom pain and. And read a little bit about the fact that our 
our active, our activity brain, uh, our doing brain, the, the parts of our brain that light up when we're engaged in a physical action that is pleasing to us or offers some sort of reward or excitement, um, that those parts of the brain, as much as I've read and not being a neuroscientist, but the stuff that I've read is that those same parts of the brain are, are sort of activated and energized when we watch things as well as when we do them. Uh, when you watch some footage of somebody skydiving, there's a kind of excitement or, you know, skiing, you know, sure, yeah. or when you watch something erotic and you have, and, and you feel erotic impulses in yourself, or, or when you see somebody in, in some extremity of like misery and you, and you feel compassion. Um, what is Hecuba to him or he to Hecuba? There's something that, that stirs in us when we watch performance that has some modicum of, of something authentic in it. And the best way I know to at least attempt to get to something authentic is on some base level trying to show up authentically. You know, today I was tired. I ate a burrito it upset my stomach. I wish I'd had more sleep. My nose is stopped up. I'm thirsty and the lights are up. And, and that was just my day, but I will go ahead and enter as prayed in Mrs. Warren's profession, uh, looking for a, a, the address and summer home of my friend Kitty and start there. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. How much of that uh, kind of found its way when you did Underneath the, the Lintel? Because this is a solo performance, and so there is no, I guess I would say, maybe limit to how much your inspirations or curiosities are going to drive the scene because you are the scene. It's, it's you up there. And did you, what did you find were some of the, both the challenges and the joys of, of doing a solo performance? Well, Part of the experience is um, once we got into performance, it was it was it was lonely. Mm. You know, it, it, it was an it was an isolated experience, and the librarian in underneath the lintel is he appears in a room that is it's an auditorium, and he is aware that people have come. And are sitting in seats to hear what he has to say. So there, there's no need for any artifice that the, there's no fourth wall. There's no fourth wall. Right. Um, the, the people who have come to see the play are the people who have come to see this man who is a librarian tell the story that he has to tell. Um, there is something, you know, exhilarating and daunting and challenging. And occasionally just sort of painfully humiliating um, about extending oneself on a personal level in front of a group of strangers and, and hoping that what you are saying and what you have to offer them is something that they have any interest in receiving, let alone their judgment about it. And not everybody who comes to the theater likes as an audience member to be directly addressed hmm. um, or have a performer look at them in the eyes and, you know, 
ask them a question right. and apparently expect a response. Um, but the play is filled with that. So that's, you know, that's exhilarating having that particular relationship. Um, sometimes the audience member who you address looks uh, bored or appalled or looks away and, and you can't pretend that they just nodded yes with a big grin on their face. You have to sort of move forward with their rejection, mm. really. And that becomes, in some, in some aspects, a part of your evening, um, or a part of that moment anyway, or right. part of your relationship with that person in the audience. And lots of people, like, as far as I can tell, were really enjoying the experience and liked being in, in there in that kind of engagement. Um, but there were also people who I felt like this was not their, this was not their cup of tea or they weren't buying the play or usually just that they weren't buying me. And I would have to, I'd have to live with that mm. and not just accept it, but I would have to in, engage with it. And, it was it was interesting the times during and and it's nothing that I there was there's so much to do in the play there's so much text and so much action along with the text and the telling of the story and making sure that the story is tracking for everyone or as many people as possible but people who looked away or people who like muttered something to their companion while you were looking at them, I would find myself later in the show, it would just sort of bubble up that I had to find that person Wow! to express a particular point to them because maybe that would be the thing that would not get them to like me, but get them on board with the narrative. Mm, wow. So, um, it, I'm sorry, what was the question? <laughs> um, so, you know, it's not like a solo recitation. Right. Right. Or something. It's, it's super, it's super engaged with, you know, a hundred scene partners. Sure. Wow. You know, I, I can tell we could talk about theater and, and ideas on acting for a, a long time. I would be, I would feel remiss if I didn't talk more about your film career, which you had, have had quite a bit of work there. Um, you know, within about 10 years, you are starring in films, playing the leads in films. And I'm just curious, you know, there's a number of questions, but were you or your agents or do you feel like uh, studios or producers trying to make you into a certain type of film star or movie star in terms of genre? Like, was there any of that uh, kind of clear focus with your career during that period? No, not at all. You know, <laughs> um, basically, my experience was, you know, whatever role somebody saw me in last mm -hmm. is what you do okay <laughs> um <laughs> so oh you're uh he plays like kind of like a hoodlum and then you know i get cast this you know revenge of the nerds was a big movie when i was in the early part of my acting career so there were a bunch of like nerd there were nerd parts right so i did a couple of roles in movies where 
I played nerds and they'd always go, can you do that laugh? Like Robert Carradine had this like funny laugh that he did. And, you know, you should wear horn rim glasses and put a piece of tape on it. It's like, well, right. Cause they did that in that movie. And they're like, oh yeah, it's like a guy who plays like nerds. Right. And then, and then you play a lawyer and they're like, yeah, it's like guy, he plays lawyers. Like, you know, so, and it was always just a matter of like, Oh, I got the job. Uh, well, or I've been offered this and I would read it and I would think like, okay, well, I, I don't have to like eat human flesh in it. I don't have to insert like yam up my rectum on camera, I guess. Um, I don't have anything. I'm free. <laughs> That day or those weeks. Um, yeah. So, I mean, basically, like, the work that I... I that really, there was no... There was no plan. There, there was no plan. There was no pathway. It's just, you know, the path that I that I wound up being on was the, the path that I was on. Right. I mean, I think... I, I, I don't have a sense in any retrospect that I can see where a thing was going, mm-hmm. but... You know, well, you were working alongside a lot of actors that were well-known film actors at that point by the time you were working with them, uh, you know, Walter Matthau and uh, Mel Gibson and John Travolta. And, you know, they were they were big stars to some degree. Do you feel like you learned or picked up anything working with them in terms of like film technique or just how to handle the business? Uh, was there anything that that you remember from those from those experiences? Walter Matthau would tell the best jokes in the world. They're all like super corny. Um, he was entirely honest at every moment with a smile on his face. Even if he was saying something that would be like devastating to somebody. Mm. And I mean, he was just, he was like the epitome of, he was a guy who was just frank about everything. Mm. And I don't know if like 23 year old Walter Matthau had, you know, his legs and the courage to say how he felt about anything, but it was, it was encouraging and instructive to see him, you know, to, to see somebody who was so much himself. Mm. Um, I, I mean, I think in a way, you know, there, there are things that I, that I learned from everybody. Sure. Um, I did a movie that not very many people have seen, um, called A Matter of Degrees. And it was sort of, you know, it was in the late eighties. And I had a couple of scenes with, uh, John Doe, who's a wonderful actor and probably most known as the, you know, front man and, songwriter and bassist for the band X. And um, long before I did the movie, I was a fan and used to go see X, you know, play in concert at the whiskey and stuff like that. Um, but there's a ton of stuff that I've learned from John Doe in a couple of days. Hmm. Little things, but really important things. Um, in terms of conducting oneself on the set, Mm-hmm. I mean, this will sound silly, but it actually was a big deal. Right. Um, we were shooting a scene where I, I'm caught in a rainstorm and I come into a building and have a scene with John Doe. 
and I'm dripping wet. And we were shooting in Providence, Rhode Island, in the fall. And it was quite cold outside. And it was an independent movie and a low budget and a lot of great, everybody, a great group of people. But when you're shooting a movie like that, it's it doesn't have like the amenities of a bigger budgeted thing. Sure. And it doesn't quite have the crew. And um, I was a big supporter of the film. And I, I was very invested in having not just the movie, but the shoot, like each shooting day be successful and that everything be achieved that needed to be achieved on the day. And at one point we had done the shot three or four times where I walk in and I'm sopping wet and then they'd, you know, they'd have to relight, they'd reset. And I was chatting with John during these moments waiting to do the shot again. And at a certain point I was really cold and somebody came in and said to me like, they're just fixing this thing, but we thought we were going to go again in five minutes. It's going to be like 20 minutes. Um, but they need you to like, don't go, like, don't go anywhere. Um, cause they're going to try and get this right away. And I said, yeah, it's fine. It's, it's, it's no problem at all. And John Doe, it said, no, 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 excuse me. Tell them that you need towels and dry clothes and somebody to help you change right now. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, 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 I'm okay. And he goes, no, 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 you should get into dry clothes because that 20 minutes, it may be 15 and you can change back, but it may turn into an hour. And if you get like a really bad cold or pneumonia, it'll feel terrible and it'll screw up the schedule that you're trying to save right now by not being a problem and getting into dry clothes when it's like, 50 degrees right now in this room and 30 degrees outside. And, you know, I I remember being kind of struck by this, like, right. I'm so invested in being well-liked that I don't want to momentarily, you know, put a hitch in anybody's get along, even though like, the sensible thing is like, well, wait a minute, this actually might not be good for the like next week's filming. And um I mean, it seems like a silly thing. And, but there have been other times when I realized like there's, there are safety issues that happen on sets all the time where it's not some violation of something, but when you kind of have to say, you know, I know we're trying to do this fast, but somebody could get injured doing this. And even though we can do the dangerous thing and it might work out, if it doesn't, it's, it, it's going to blow the rest of the week. Right. Yeah. In addition to the reason, you know, that like nobody should get hurt at work. Yeah, of course. Anyway. So um, that's just one example of somebody who I learned something so deeply practical from. Yeah. And, and, and I think it's important, you know, not just actors, but, you know, in this case, actors, uh, we can fall into that trap of not wanting to be the problem, wanting, you know, uh, many people get into acting because they want to be liked. Um, and, and you can, you have that come up and, and there's, I think as, as John was trying to illustrate, there's a level of being professional about it too, of like, these are, you know, this is, this is how we all stay on the same page and we all, you know, move forward and we're all, we're treating everybody with respect, uh, in terms of, um, you know, what's, what needs to happen. And it's, it's not you being a problem. It's, 
it's actually this is going to save this is going to save any any potential issues down the road. Yeah. And then there's also the simple thing of like, don't make somebody stand around right. shivering. Right, right, exactly. I mean, it, you know, it wasn't like you were saying, I need a trailer with, you know, heaters and, you know, it, it wasn't, it was just some dry clothes, you know, come on. Yeah, the, right. You know, that, that'd That's be, right. It's, it's, you know, having perspective and, and the awareness and being an advocate for yourself too, like knowing like that's, that's important. That's yeah. You know, Polonius is full of a lot of hot air, <laughs> but there is something to this above all, to thine own self be true. Right, right. Um, I, I wanted to ask about another, uh, the TV project, Ellen, because you were on that, uh, you were a series regular for a few years, and that, you know, there are so many actors that look at, you know, being a series regular as such a coveted thing, and or, or it's a goal for many people. And I'm curious, what did you take away from your time as a series regular on that show? Wow. Well, <laughs> um, a, a lot. There was... Um, well, let me ask really quick. Was, was it a goal for you to do... Because you you seemed, at least from a career perspective, you started doing more television. Were you eyeing more television projects? Around that time, you know, I was doing a lot of films. Some that I thought were great. Some that were terrible. And um, I, I was not particularly interested in doing television. It, you know, you know, it's not like it's not like it is now, where great actors are doing great projects that have been developed for you know specifically for these small right these now set of small screens. So it was really not at all in my plans to do television, but. The people who did The Wonder Years had this show that they developed called These Friends of Mine. Mm -hmm. And um, they'd asked me to come in and do a couple readings of it. They didn't just offer me the part. They said, we wrote this thing. We're going we're gonna to do will – you, will you do a reading at our house? Mm -hmm. And I did. I had – I really had not auditioned for a lot of – I auditioned for a lot of television the first couple of years I was working, mm -hmm. but once I got kind of a big break, which was the movie Soul Man, right? Um, I started getting offered movies, and I wasn't doing any television for probably about six years. And um, it's funny, I, I had one agent, John Gaines, when I was at APA, which was at one of the first big agencies I was with, when I left and went to CAA. When I left, he, he said to me, um, all right, I understand. I understand that you're making this big move right now, but just don't let them make you do television. Hmm. <laughs> um, and that was probably around 1988. And they weren't, you know, I was getting movies and, um, there was a big television project. Uh, I'll, I'll leave some names up. There's a, there was a very big show and the guys who wrote it, um, were also clients at CAA and they wanted me to play the lead in this show. Okay. And so we went, we went around to networks to pitch the show and nobody picked it up. And then they called me one day and said, um, we've written this other thing. We wrote this part for you in the series. And I would go over to their offices regularly and 
um, read new pages of their pilot and, and talk with them as they sort of flesh things out. And then they finally had a pilot and I went to some pitch meetings with them and it got picked up. And then they said, okay, you have to, um, so the network wants to read people for the role and they, they really like you for it. And they know that we want you to do it and that we wrote it for you, but you're going to have to audition for them. And my agent at the time said, no, don't go in. Don't go in and read. Mm. Let them see other people, but you're not going to go in and read. And I said, uh, okay, guys, I'm sorry. I'm, you know, I trust my agent. I'm not going to go in and read. And then they called me and said, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen if you don't read. And I said, well, I, you know, I'm just, I'm going to stay with my agents, like my business partner in this. And, and I really want to do this and I'm hoping it works out. And they kind of said, okay, we'll fight for you, but we're not sure you're making the right move. Mm-hmm. And so I stuck to my guns and then they like called me the next day and said, we're sorry, but they saw somebody who they like and they're casting him. Mm-hmm. And this guy is a wonderful actor and he was on the show for many years And, um, but a couple years later, there was a movie I really wanted to do and he was on this TV show and he got cast in this movie and it was a role that I was on. Like I was led to believe I was on sort of a short list for this very good movie. And, um, and I didn't get it. And my, my manager at that time just said, and this is right when Ellen in its first. Right. Yeah iteration these friends of mine was sort of in the air and i didn't get this thing and he said just why don't you just make it easy on yourself do the tv show you know you just like you're not as well known as this guy who did this other tv show and that's why he got the movie Mm. just make it easy on yourself and do the tv show you're being offered this thing And so, against my better judgment, I said yes. And it was, it was a very difficult journey. I mean, there, there were times where, you know, I had fun and laughed a lot. And it's a challenging and weird way to do something. Um, and, you know, sitcoms are, seem to be having a kind of revival now. Right. And, yeah. and weirdly, sitcoms that were done during that yes. you know, period yeah. in the early 90s are having a revival. Right. Um, but, you know, it was a very unpleasant experience hmm. for me working on that show. Um, and not one that I, I'd want to recreate. Um, you know, it's funny. I, um, you know, I do a movie where I played kind of a hippie and then I'd read for something else and they'd go, I don't know, he seems a little hippie-ish for this thing. And then I'd do a movie where I played a lawyer and then I'd read for something else and they'd go, like, seems a little, you know, man in the gray flannel suit. And then I did this sitcom and the producers would say, I don't know if you think that's what you're doing is like good acting or something, but it's like not funny and, and it's not comedy. And then for like three years after I was off the show, a lot of stuff was like, eh, it seems very sitcom-y. Mm-hmm. So 
And I would know, like, wait a minute. I, I, I don't know that that's super true, but maybe. And, um, you know, it's funny. After, you know, I was on that show for a couple of seasons and then had my participation in that show sort of cut short rather abruptly or sooner than I had thought. Basically, I thought I was doing a season and then... Days before it started, they told me I was going to do two episodes and not the whole season. Um, and um, right after I made my last exit from that show, the next day I was offered an episode of Friends. Oh, okay. And so, like, the following week, I did an episode of Friends. And we'd have a table read, and and they'd say, so how'd that feel? And the actors would say, well, I like this. And, you know, this. and then they like came to me and they'd say, so what are your thoughts? And I'd go, I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> and they go, no, but well, do, does anything seem? No, 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 there's nothing. No, I mean, I'm good with whatever you guys want to do. I'm totally. And like all week long, whenever they would ask me my opinion about something, I was, I just felt like, look, I'm great. I don't want to make any waves. This is. And it was such an entirely different culture mm. where there was this kind of like mutual respect flowing back and forth from the creators to the performers. And Ellen was, you know, had been to date other than a couple of other episodes of stuff early on years earlier. It was really my own experience in television and I had no idea that it could be as fun as the, as it was, you know, guest starring in one episode on that show. Right. But um, I, I think television can make people crazy. Yeah. But also, if it's working and people are having a good time, um, it can be great and great way to make a living. Sure. Well, and, and as you said, I mean, there are a lot of, like, you were kind of in this second golden age of TV or, or smaller screen things where... You know, um, there's a lot of different ways people are producing content nowadays. And so, you know, I think it probably or hopefully it opens up more avenues of how people can collaborate and, and co-create in, in, in these kind of uh, more fun ways that aren't as perhaps challenging or stressful, uh, that it's not the it's not the same studio system uh, that everything is going through. You know, I. <laughs> I wish that I had enjoyed it more, and I wish that they had liked me on that show. I, I was actually, after the pilot, after we got picked up, but before I'd done a single episode, I was fired. Hmm. Because the creators of the show didn't like a question that I asked, having read a couple of their early scripts. And not even realizing that I had gotten fired, I got a call from my manager saying, the studio's not letting them fire you. Wow. So that's how it started. Oh, geez. Yeah. Um, then I was fired twice more in the first year of doing that show. But it didn't take, you know, I was fired by somebody who then did not get the approval of either the studio or the network to fire me. Right. So it was, you know, it was an uncomfortable place to work. Yeah. And also because there's this thing where I was contractually obligated to, even after being fired, I was contractually obligated to do it once they sort of rescinded the 
firing. Yeah. So it definitely like colored my, you know, relationship to that work. It is really funny timing. You mentioned the Friends episode, and then you know, I know you went on to do a lot of TV, and you you had a very recurring part on on Castle, and I remember. You know, talking with you when you were doing that, and that seemed to be a very different, a very fun experience, very rewarding experience. Totally different. Like a great community of people, cast and crew, like super gracious and welcoming and supportive. And, and um, you know, I, I loved every bit of that and loved the producers on that show um, who were you know, gracious with me. And um, yeah, it was a totally different, you know, each of these things has their own culture in a way. Um, And um, Stan Akatic and Nathan Fillion are both like really, really lovely people. And everything kind of would flow from that. Right. I mean, well, yeah, there is that line that, uh, you know, number one on the call sheet definitely sets the tone of how things are going to go. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think there's something to that. Yeah. Uh, again, I know we could talk for another couple hours, but I know you have a lot going on, including bookcases that you need to get to. Um, so we've talked a lot about different things you've done in your career. You've been a lead in feature films. You've been a series regular. You've done tons of theater. You've managed a theater. You recently did a solo performance. What do you still really want to do as an actor? Um, a modern dance piece. <laughs> um, oh, you know, there's there's tons of stuff. There's all those great classic roles, sure, and playwrights that I've not yet had a chance to explore. Both like classic stuff and and newer writers. So, um, you know, I don't have a secret desire to do all the works of Tennessee Williams or something like that. Um, I just acting is, you know, it's my favorite thing to do. I love, I love being engaged in the effort. Uh, we not that long ago lost the like great, great writer, Donald Hall, who was um, the poet laureate of New Hampshire and for a year, uh, was the poet laureate of the United States. And Donald Hall, uh, one of the first things that I read by him, it was an essay uh, about his relationship to work and to his work and to literature. And I think this was in the context, and this was like decades ago, And but he was, he, he had been diagnosed with cancer and which, as I say, lived for decades longer after this diagnosis, mm-hmm. um, but was confronted with the idea that he was not going to be able to read everything in his life that he had planned to, mm-hmm. and that he was going to have to make some choices uh, because there were there were great things that he wanted to read again. But at one point, he he writes the phrase that as a writer, that he loves words the way a carpenter loves wood. And it just, like, really hit home for me mm. that there's something about not necessarily performance in itself, but a rehearsal, working on material, finding the way in. And finding meaning and how it's expressed, like 
bang, that's the activity. That's the thing I find my deepest engagement in. Hmm. Where time stops. So I, I, I do, uh, um, I do really love it. So who knows? I, you know, I, I don't know what the next thing is. I was curious, is there something, you know, looking back that you wish you paid more attention to and something you pay, you wish you paid less attention to? Yeah. Um, I, I, I wish I'd paid more attention to learning the international phonetic alphabet. <laughs> uh, because every time I do a role where where there's where some accent is required, um, I have to go back and try and look things up and try and remember what a schwa sounds like and um, where the placement of things are. Because I I actually love working on accents, mm-hmm. um, but it's very time consuming because because I I never really paid attention in a voice class that I had in. You know, as a freshman in college, on on learning all the symbols. You know what I'm talking right, about. Yes. When, yeah. You, know, you look a word up in the dictionary, and it's got those that little guide how to pronounce things. Exactly. Yeah. Well, if you know that, you can speak any accent that a human speaks. Right. Classical singers are trained in that because they have to sing in German or Italian or you know anything yes, like that. Yeah. That's right. That's right, but, but yeah, actor, actors don't think about um, how that can relate to accents uh, very often. I, so I certainly didn't think about it a lot, but um, it's a good point. And what do I wish I had paid less attention to? Mm-hmm. I, I I don't know. I don't think that my problem was that I was too focused on. So I probably should have paid more attention to just about everything. Okay. Well, I mean, a lot of actors, myself included, you can live with a lot of anxiety about certain things, whether it's auditions or your career, and uh, oh, am I going to get this, or is it, how is this look, or is this person like me? And you know, a lot of times, maybe after after time has passed, you can look back and go, okay, I really didn't need to stress as much about the things I thought I did. But it's also helpful to hear that you, you could have been paying more attention to everything. Yeah, that seems to come up for me a lot. Um, <laughs> the phrase, we talked about this, <laughs> I told you his name, you knew it was my birthday, that kind of stuff is the is the stuff I wish I had paid more attention to. So you've, you've always been like a 75-year-old senile man who... Sorry, what, exa- what did you say? Exactly. What were, what were you talking about? Okay. Um, as someone that reads so much and is so curious, I'm curious, I'm curious, now that you're curious, is there a quote or some, you know, we've actually brought up Shakespeare actually a couple times in this, but uh, any kind of quote or, or something that you feel like you try to live your life by or that stays with you, uh, whether it's from a poem or from a book or you know, anything else that, uh, you know, any kind of phrase that really resonates with you and you try to adhere to? Uh, you know, I think there have been a lot of different things uh, uh, over the years. Um, so the two, just the two things that, that come to mind yeah. um, is, you know, there's a great, there's this great quote from, um, okay, three. <laughs> there are three things. So every actor should know this this Martha Graham quote to Agnes DeMille. Okay. Um, no artist is satisfied. That uh, that just you know, mm-hmm. and you can find it online just with that. It's a wonderful letter that 
Martha Graham had written to Agnes DeMille mm. addressing some concerns and anxieties and sort of encouraging her to like listen, listen to her, her own voice and follow her own expression because we are each of us the only the only complex of feelings packaged in exactly the same way we are the like unique source for that in the universe there's there's no other way to get a sense of nathan agan in the world but from you mm. um so the degree to which you block it or conceal it is the degree to which it will not be out in the world and it won't be felt and the world will be denied it because it doesn't exist anywhere else. And basically she's saying, don't stand in its way and don't judge it. Let it out. There may be answers or inspiration in it for others that, that, that you're unaware of right? or that you have no way of anticipating. So there's this great quote by Beethoven, and I don't read German, so I'm just sort of taking it, you know, on faith, that he did say something along the lines of, what will anyone think of today's favorite composers 100 years from now? There's no way of knowing. So all we can do is, and this is horribly paraphrasing, you know, live life to the fullest, I think he says, you know, love or fear or have faith in God and never stop learning for life is short, art eternal. And it's it's a lovely idea. I'm not sure that I know exactly what it means anymore um, in the way that I used to hear it. But I think today it means don't worry about anything other than doing the thing that you're doing because who knows how it's going to be perceived. Just be truthful and just continue to learn. And the other thing that comes to mind, is a couple of lines from, from a poem of the poet. I don't know how to pronounce her name. I think it's I, her name is spelled a I. Okay. I had a faxed, copy of this particular poem sent to me by a friend um, on my refrigerator 20 years ago. And you know, fax paper kind of turns, you know, just turns gray right. after a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I have searched all over the place for this poem. Oh God. Um, and I can't find it, but there's a line in it where she says, think of yourself as a leaf about to fall. Now decide what to do with your time. And, and that notion is very, very important to me as the days grow shorter. Right. And the nights grow longer. <laughs> uh, that's all really beautiful. And it's personally very helpful. Uh, you know, I, I cannot begin to suspect what people think of me when they hear me, you know, on, on these podcasts and interviewing. But, uh, you know, I have my own concerns and worries and hopes and dreams about this project. And at the same time, I, I try to do the best work I can with it. Uh, I try to 
show up as and be as present as I can, be as as researched as I can, but but you know try to really have a, a good conversation. And it also leads me into you know just being so grateful uh, for your time. Uh, and and it, it personally means a lot because you have been such uh, such a help in my life uh, as a as a teacher, uh, as a mentor, as a friend, uh, as a, as a fellow actor. It means a lot when I, I imagine you can you can understand this. It means a lot when the people who are impactful in your life are willing to give more of their time or to say yes to your project or to you know whatever it is. Uh, it, uh, it it's just very personally very fulfilling uh, to have you be a part of this. And whenever I you know dreamed this up, uh, you were always at the top of the list. It was uh, more a matter of. Um, Figuring out how we could how we could schedule it and make it happen, and and I'm I'm grateful that your cat could join us uh, for this as well. And I'm glad I figured out that really she was just hungry. <laughs> um, so thank you, Nathan, and I I just um, I appreciate what you just said, and I I, I just want to say you know I I think of you know in a way all those quotes that I just mentioned, mm. it feels to me like stuff that that you have incorporated in your life since since the time you left school i i have sort of seen you follow your own path more entirely than almost anyone else i've ever met and I, it's it's very it's very impressive uh, and i just have tremendous admiration for you uh Thank you. Uh, I, I am curious if in 20 years I'll be able to look back and say I knew what I was doing or, uh, boy, I was lucky. I don't, I don't know. It, uh, but, but yeah, maybe it's a, maybe for everybody, it's a combination of both. You know, you, you have an, you have an idea, but there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of things that you just leave up to chance too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Very quickly, I saw somebody post uh, they were celebrating 400 episodes on their podcast, and they they decided to frame it as that that's 400 yeses they got. And uh, oh wow! And then of course, like you know, they say uh, there was also that first yes where I said yes to myself that I'll do this. So trying to like kind of embody that, nice. like yeah, every time every time there's a podcast out, it's because somebody said yes, and like that. It's these little things as we were talking about, the little things that you don't want to pass over sometimes. It's like, yeah, that that is meaningful. So, you know, um, I'm not a huge note taker in acting class um, because it's so experiential. And but one of the few relatively few notes that I took in a class with Roy London mm -hmm. was him saying there is no failure. Mm. There is no failure whatsoever. And then he said, okay, the only failure is the failure to engage. Mm. So, so yeah, it's about that saying yes to yourself. Well, Ari, thank you again so, so much. It's, uh, this has been a great conversation. I've, I, I love learning more about people that I uh, know a little bit about. And uh, I just appreciate how open and, and honest you've been with, uh, with your journey. Thanks. It, it was a pleasure. Um, more on this later. Exactly. So that was Ari. And that is 20 episodes. Unbelievable. And another great chat, right? So to quickly connect back to it, remember to say yes to yourself. And every chance you get to act, someone has said yes to you. 
It might be a producer, director, writer. Even if you've generated the project, someone else has said, yes, let's do this. The guests I've had on here, they didn't do this to help their career. They weren't even promoting anything. They did this because they wanted to, and they freely gave so generously with their time, and I am so grateful to all 20 of them. And I want to say another special thank you to you for saying yes to this podcast. I don't take that lightly. You may never know how much work actually goes into this, and that's fine. I want this to be an amazing listening and learning experience for you. And I hope it has been today. So whether this is your first episode or you've listened to all of them, I really appreciate you making this part of your day. Hey guys, Nathan here one more time. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe so you don't miss anything ahead. Be sure to visit WorkingActorsJourney.com for additional info and links for items mentioned in today's episode, as well as all the episodes. You can follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. All the links are on our site and in the episode notes. Become a premium member and enjoy additional benefits and perks of the show, starting at just $2 per month. Head over to WorkingActorsJourney.com slash premium to join the Working Actors community. And don't forget to claim your free audiobook at WorkingActorsJourney.com slash audible. Thanks again to today's guest and to everyone that makes these episodes possible. And a special thanks to you for listening. I'm Nathan Agan, and enjoy the journey. I don't believe it, man. It is.